Romans 8. Let's begin reading in verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us in that kind of a way, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the Father's right hand and is also interceding today for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written in the Psalms, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels, nor demons, neither the present or the future, or any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. I love that statement. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, I know this is a familiar text, and I know I've preached on this text before. I'm going to try to do better than I did last time, okay? Um, Probably the most familiar verse in all of Scripture is verse 28. All things work together for good to those who love God who are called according to His purpose. You have probably in suffering or in pain in your own life had people quote you that verse and remind you of that truth. Sometimes appropriately, sometimes inappropriately. Sometimes in context and sometimes out of context. Right? But it is, it is a powerful verse that launches Paul into three categories of concern, and all of them relate to the fact that we live in a world that by definition is uncertain. You can look at world history, go to and take any world history class. Most history classes are not about the good things that happen, right? Most history classes are about what? The wars and rumors of wars, the fighting and conflict and struggle and death and plagues and groaning. Isn't that true? And what would history class be without a conflict? Like almost every era of our history as a nation is defined by what? By wars. So we live in a world where there is uncertainty. That uncertainty can provoke within us insecurity. When we as the people of God should be the most secure people on the planet. Because we serve an incredibly capable God. Sometimes we as Christians are guilty of political panic. We see things going awry and we think the wheels are falling off. And I think the word of God speak to us, speaks to us differently. 
In this text, what do we see? We see the future clearly defined. And it's as Peter reflects on this. Peter says, we don't look at what is seen. We look at what is unseen. As you think back through the Old Testament, you remember Elijah encountering a battle with the people, the, the armies of Assyria, a strong army. And here's what Elijah prays. He's got his servant there with him. His servant is shaking in his boots, his, his helper. He's riddled with fear and insecurity and uncertainty. And Elijah cries out to God. And you know what, what he says to God? He says, God, allow my servant to see what I see. And God gave him a vision a picture of what's happening in the realm that you and I don't see, in the unseen. And his shaking confidence was solidified by an understanding that God is near and God is able and God is for us. And so that is a promise, I think, that Paul brings into the New Testament now via the cross of Christ to say to us in the midst of an uncertain world, be secure in Christ. Don't be people of panic. Don't be people riddled with fear. Should we weep for our country? Should we weep in terms of the sin and the direction that sometimes we see? Absolutely. Should we panic? Never. Never. And understand this. Understand what it is to push the panic button and then realize, okay, I, I kind of jumped on that a little quickly and come back to a place where we reckon with the fact that the God that we serve is in control of all things. One commentator reflecting on this text Put the word eventually over the whole story. Because what happens? We live in a world of tension where God allows things to happen that you and I say, if I was God, that wouldn't happen. Not on my watch. But what do we lack? We lack the broader perspective, the bigger picture of what God is doing through the difficulties. And so we cry for a way out right away. Instead of saying, God, show me what you want to show me here. Grow me in the way that you want to grow me through this circumstance. So that we're not people of panic. We're people that groan, but we groan with expectation. With an expectation that the future that we are walking into is secure because he is already there. Folks, understand this. He has never been taken by surprise. Ever. He is not a God who is contingent. As many see him. Standing back, watching what people do, and then responding. That's not the God of the Bible. He's not a chess player waiting to see what the next move is so that he can make his next plan. He is over all of it. And I want that truth this morning, by the grace of God, to settle in so that we would claim a promise like Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, God says. Plans not to hurt you, but to help you, to give you hope and a future. So that you and I would live in light of the future as people of hope. Not depressed, not down, not panicked. But understanding that God is for us. As we sung this morning, he is on our side. He is with us to strengthen us and to help us and to enable us. He is not a distant presence. He is a personal presence through the power of the Spirit. So this morning, three threats or fears that we face in this life that undermine the security that Jesus Christ intends for us to live with. Three threats or fears that every person in this life faces that undermine the security that should define who we are. Okay, three threats. And I'm going to give you three words. We face the threat of circumstances, unforeseen, 
sometimes anticipated. We face the threat of condemnation. And we face the threat of abandonment, of separation. So let's first look at the threat of circumstances. And the way that Paul deals with this in 28 through verse 30, he, he, he's basically going to make an assertion about God. This is theology. This is doctrine. This is words about the God of heaven. Here's what Paul's going to say. We know that in all things, and here's the truth about God, God works for the good of those who love him. Now, I want to just unpack that verse for you. I want you to think about the circumstances you're in in your life today. I want you to take this truth and read it into the story, the narrative of your life today. No matter what it is that you're facing, what it is that's on your mind, well, it should be on this. The thing that kept you awake last night. The thing that has been haunting you perhaps for months, maybe years. Here's what God says about it. It says three assertions. God actively works in our lives. He is an active agent. He is not a passive observer. He is involved intricately in the details of our lives. Which is to say what? The perspective of Christians is not the sun will come up tomorrow. That's not Christian theology. Christian theology isn't, oh, you lost that fiance, you'll get another. Oh, you crashed your car, you'll get another. Well, days will get, you'll get past that eventually, it'll get better. That's not Christian theology, that's fatalism. That if you wait long enough, good will come. But when you look at history, what do you see? If you wait long enough, bad will come. We serve a God who is over and above all things. And he works energetically in our lives, an active agent. Secondly, God works in all things. The good, the bad, the indifferent. The things that concern you, the things that make you happy, and the things that cause you to say, Meh. all of those things, he is sovereignly working in. Circumstances that make you groan, circumstances that make you smile, circumstances that make you sad, circumstances that fill you with elation. God makes this promise, I am exhaustively in control of all things. You go back to chapter 5, just flip back one page with me, verse 1 of chapter 5. Following this expose of justification in chapters 1 through 4, Paul says this, therefore, in light of that gospel of Christ... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What is that? That is the manifestation of God in all of His fullness that comes in the future when Christ returns. Not only so, now listen to this, not only so, but we also rejoice in what? Tribulations or suffering. Folks, do you see this, the, the ark or the reach of God's sovereignty? And the things that are good, the glory of God revealed, there we rejoice. And what does Paul say? We also rejoice in our tribulation. Why? Because we know that God is working where? Between those parentheses in life, he's at work. He's in control. I was out... A Monday, a week ago, with Barbara and Nevit Duvenek. 
had the privilege of going out sailing. I called Monday morning and said, do you guys want to go sailing? Yes, I do. Got on a, think of a sailboat that's 25 foot long. I've never, like, been at the helm of a boat like that. And what we learned is that I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so every so I saw the edge of this 25 foot by 8 foot beam boat getting down to the edge of the water. I'm thinking, that's probably not good at a certain point. So we're cruising along. Now, no, you're doing good. Okay. And then I'll say, hey, hey, do, do. I, I, was, I was bound up in fear of sinking this vessel. So I showed Nevitt how to do a U-turn in a 25-foot sailboat. I just let go. Because early on, he told me, he said, if you get in a circumstance where you really feel threatened, just let go of the helm. So I was like, Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> it did a U-turn right in the river. Here's the thing he said to me. He said, now, the danger in what you just did is that you almost lost my wife and your wife. <laughs> Why? I, I'm not that good at sailing. I honestly was going purely by feel. Changing winds that were circling is dangerous and fun. Okay? With God, I never have to fear that he's just going to say, you know what? I don't know how to handle this. That's exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm joking with you, but I seriously thought I was going to sink this thing. I'm trying to figure out how Nevitt's going to explain that because he's the captain in charge. God has never seen a circumstance that caused him to go. And you know how you and I do that? We hear bad news and we're like, what? God has never, ever been exposed to such a thing. Now let that settle in. He causes all things, that is he controls everything, that is his control is exhaustive, to work together for good. The things that you want to throw off, the circumstances in your life that you want to change, what is God saying? Let me work. Give me the helm. Let me drive the vehicle of your life. Let me steer. Let me control all things. So that you and I can have the joy of sitting back. And the funny thing, sailing on the boat, when Nevitt was at the helm, I was totally relaxed. The whole time I was, had my hand on that thing, I was petrified that something was going to happen bad. God has never, ever faced a circumstance like that. He actively is working everything together for your benefit, even though at times in the midst of the circumstances that we're in, what are we thinking? This, this can't turn out well. And we, we pray for a release from the thing that God brought us into in his sovereign plan. And I'm going to tell you this. There are times that God won't let you out when you want out. He will, he will bind you in by his truth, crying out by his spirit in your heart. Stay the course. Obey me, follow me, trust me. He works all things actively together for our good. I was reading through Revelation 17 with the men. We're doing a the reading through Revelation with the men in men's Bible study. Revelation 17, 17. I want you to listen to this verse. It's talking about some of the supernatural battles that are taking place in the apocryphal pictures of the book of Revelation talks about a conflict that arises within the unholy trinity, the beast, the false prophet, and Satan himself, the dragon. You have this three-headed beast, 
and you have this conflict that emerges within a, a, a dissension and a bit of a mutiny. And here's what the text says. This stuck out to me. God put it in their hearts to accomplish his purpose. That's how that conflict out there is defined. As the hand of God. That's how utterly and unbelievably and for some of us uncomfortably sovereign God is. Because that leaves us as Christians with things to explain, right? If God is absolutely and exhaustively sovereign, then what about this? You've had people say it to you. I fear those questions. But I'm going to tell you something. Back up. Stop trying to God, trying to deliver God from what he appears to say. Let him be God. And trust him. Trust him with that circumstance that you would rather get rid of. And the limitation on this text is that God does all of this for those who, what? Everybody else not see it? God does this for who? For those that love him. Okay, that's not everybody that I know. So there is a titan category of people that God has a special affection for that is communicated through the gospel of the cross. Why do we love him? First John tells us. We love him because he first loved us. Our love is not a seeking after God love. Our love is a response to the love of God that sought us out. And Jesus says to his disciples, you didn't seek me, I sought you. You didn't jump into this game, I drew you in this game. I chose you. I want you to think about this. How sovereign is that? Here's what the text says. Listen, listen to what it says in the next verse. It says, for those who God foreknew. And the idea of foreknowledge here is to set love upon previously. Okay, to set this unique affection upon prior to. It's a foreknowing of love. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 7. Just listen to what this verse says. This is about God choosing Israel as his people. It says, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Why did God choose Israel? Because he chose Israel. Why did he love them? Because he loved them. That was his plan, his purpose, his sovereign decision. To love a nation that he would later say, I chose you even though I knew you were a rebellious and stiff-necked people. Why does God work that way? Why does he choose people like you and me? You know why he does it? To demonstrate his glory in all things. So the people will say, why him? Why her? Why you? So that God would be glorified. That's what Paul says. God chose me, Paul says, even though I was the worst of sinners. Why? So that he might magnify his grace and amaze a watching world with what God can do in people's lives. 
So this text goes on to give us just a few simple statements. God foreknew, predestined, and called people into a relationship with him. What is that? That's divine design. Can I explain it fully? No. Nor will I explain it away. And try to make it say something that it doesn't say. What it says is that if you sense the call of God upon your heart, you owe him the response of repentance and faith in Christ. If you sense that, That God has been showing you, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior. And God has drawn me to one in Jesus Christ. Here's what I'll tell you to do. Repent and believe, Acts 2.37. You sense God calling, working, don't get proud. It should humble you. And it should cause you to run to Him for the relief that you so desperately need. I love the last word of this verse. Verse 30. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. That is to declare righteous via the merits of Christ's blood. To make something I could never be on my own. He declares us righteous. And those that he declared righteous, the last word says this. He also what? Glorified. Every verb in the same tense. Every verse looking back. To what God has already, in his eternal perspective, accomplished. You know what that means? That means if you have trusted Christ, you are secure because of what he has done. He has already spoken about what? Your future. Those he foreknew, predestined, called, justified, he also has glorified. Which is speaking about what? Speaking about what happened to Christ at the resurrection when he ascended into the presence of the Father. God's plan, his work, his design in your life is as certain as his character is. He has already seen you as what you will be. You know what that'll do? That'll shake off some insecurity. That'll shake off some fear. If I don't know if I'm up to this life. Well, you're not. God called you, God justified you, God predestined you and set his love on you and he will glorify you. That is the promise of God. That promise comes to shore up the foundation of faith in every believer. His aim is not controversy, but assurance and glory to cause us to shake our head in wonder. Why me? Well, I don't know because he loves you and desires a relationship with you. The clear indication of this text is that all of this is a package deal. It is an all-inclusive gift from God to which I make no contribution. I never make myself more justified. I never finish what Christ has already done. I enjoy the benefits and pleasure of what he through the cross has accomplished for me and for every one of you has believed It is not a story where God does his bit and then you meet him halfway and do yours. It's not like an IRA or a 401 where you make a contribution and the employer makes an equal contribution. It's all of God. By sovereign grace, determining your past, your present, and your future for his glory. Now, why fear? Why live with a shattered security? When we serve a God who is in control of all of the circumstances that are present in our lives. Secondly, let's look at the word condemnation. Verse 31 through 34. 
And by the way, let me just, just say this. I think the aim of those verses we just looked at is that God wants to assure believers in all things that verse 17, even though we share in his suffering, we will also share in his glory. Along the way, what happens? Sometimes trouble shakes our confidence, doesn't it? This text aims to do what? It aims to shore up and secure your foundation in Jesus Christ. But the work of God that this text states that I think is amazing is that his aim, his design is that we would be shaped or conformed, verse 29 says, into the image of his son. So the aim of this gospel is to do what? It is to reshape, reconfigure, remake, make new our hearts. That is the commitment of God in your life if you know him personally. Now, what happens in the text? What Paul's going to do is move from an assertion about God that he causes all things to work together. He's going to move from an assertion now to a few questions. And just follow this real quickly. Verses 31 to 34. What shall we say in response to this? And now Paul's going to ask a question. If God is for us, who can be against us? You ever sat back and thought about that question? Because what does it seem to imply? Well, what's the question imply? If God's for us, who can be against us? These are all rhetorical questions. Okay, how does a rhetorical question function? If God's for us, who can be against us? I mean, I'm a fan of the Eagles. How can we lose? Right? You understand? It's a rhetorical. It's, what Paul's going to do is he's going to drive home at Christian security via questions that are really statements. So your first kind of blush at the question is, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, I, and, right? You, you can come up with a list of people that are against, that oppose. But who can finally oppose? God. Do you see? It's like the little dog that's nipping at your ankle, right? Biting at your pant leg, maybe drawing a touch of blood. You are not really afraid, or you shouldn't be. Why? Because, you know? There are things you could do to get that dog away. So what it, you, you, you have this nipping, but it's inconsequential. It doesn't affect my life as the chihuahua is untying my shoes with his teeth. It doesn't matter. Why? He's bested. And so it, it, the story reared off the red-nosed reindeer. You remember the abominable snowman that comes out? Or the, I forget what he's called. The abominable something. And the guy that's the dentist does what? He goes in and pulls his teeth. Right? And then he comes out and Rudolph's going by with this company. And what happens? He roar! But he's got no teeth. And what happens? They just kind of like smile at him like, good day. Good to see you. And move. no fear. Folks, do you understand that at the cross, that's what Jesus did? He took the devil, the evil one. And it, it, it's a flow through the Gospels. You find this fall and defeat of Satan implied beginning a, a a a a final end of satan begun jesus sends his disciples out to preach the good news of the gospel and to do miracles and they come back and jesus says how to go and they say this and this and this and this and this happened and what does he say to them don't rejoice in that rejoice that your name is written in the book of life rejoice that your future is secure and while you were doing that which is good stuff but it's not ultimate stuff I saw Satan falling from heaven. Where is Christ going with that statement? 
Yeah, I sent you out to do that. And when you did it, you stormed the gates of hell. And you brought victory through the name of Christ. That's what all of that stuff was about. But it wasn't ultimate. Don't rejoice in that. That is a foretaste of something greater. The kingdom will one day overthrow for good the evil one and all of his forces. That's Christian hope. That's Christian security. That when Satan roars, there are no teeth for believers. Can he scare you? Can he intimidate you? Can he affect your life? Yes, I do not in any way want to un underestimate his authority and power. But I do want you to know that he is a chihuahua nipping at your heels. Can he intimidate you and scare you? Yeah, I have a daughter. My daughter, Rebecca, is petrified of dogs. When she was younger, she got her hand out near a dog and it enveloped her hand. From three years old, from that day forward, she, there is not a dog on the planet she is not afraid of, even chihuahuas. But I always say to her, you don't need to be afraid. I know you are, but you don't need to be. Looks a little silly. Now, you're only five foot, I understand that. But that chihuahua is only like five inches high. But what do you want to know? There is a victory that's been claimed for us, folks. The teeth are gone. He is defeated. I saw him falling from heaven. That's what Jesus says. As you and I go out and do the works of God, what's happening? Satan is in this. It's a long descent. You and I wish we were like that. Bring it now. But God's got people to win. He's got purposes to fulfill. And in the midst of your struggle, he wants you to know Satan is on the way down and the church of Christ is ascending and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's against you, church. When you go into your workplace on Monday, it's you, his representative filled with his spirit, with a chihuahua snipping at your feet. Just remember that's who he is. If God be for us, who can be against us? Well, Paul, you know, everything. But it's all chihuahuas. In light of who God is, it's all small stuff. Even David looked at a giant Goliath who towered over him. But David has spiritual perspective. He got the eyes of God and Goliath looked like nothing. He was small and insignificant and puny because he had challenged someone so much greater. What was David? Just a representative. It's all. To someone who stepped out and said, I believe God is stronger than you. And you're going down today. That should be our attitude as believers. Not cocky, not arrogant. Why? Because I was brought into this purely by grace. It's not because I made a right choice. It's because God changed my heart. Brought me to repentance and faith. He is forming Christ in me. And he has already in his mind seen what I will be one day. Because his promises can never Love, don't you love reading through the Psalms? It talks about God's unfailing love. I mean, if you study the history of the nation of Israel and you realize that God loves the nation of Israel, you know what that is? That's unfailing love. That's a difficult nation that God chose to love. And so are you and I. And yet he loves us with an undying love that should cause us to be people of great security. Verse 33 and 34, Paul asked another question. He's just driving this home. If God's for us, who can be against us? And the answer is, well, he didn't spare his own son. Won't he then with him also give us freely all things? Argument from what? A greater gift to a lesser gift. 
What's God saying? If I gave you the gospel, if I did not spare my own son, but I sent him to die on the cross and bear the price for your sin, what makes you think I can't take care of your problem today? What makes you think that someone who would love you that much would withhold love today? But that's how we go to God, don't we? We go to God in an accusing tone. God, why are you doing this? In an angry tone that totally lacks trust and demands that he change things. You know what God wants to show you? He wants to show you that's a chihuahua. Stand strong. I sent my son. I will cover all the other bases. That is nothing compared to that sacrifice. Argument from greater to every need that I have today that's lesser. If he didn't spare his own son, won't he deal with your current circumstance, your current relational struggle, your current fear in your workplace? Won't he deal with those things? Verse 33, who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. It is God who declares righteous. And I love what he says. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God where Satan has been vanquished. And what is he doing? He is the one who died. More than that was raised to life. Is at the right hand of the Father. Also interceding for us. So what happens? Charges against us come. Some of them absolutely dead on and true. But it is God who justifies. And it is Christ who intercedes. For every one of our failures. And he strikes it from the record. By his precious blood. He ever lives. What is Paul saying? For all of your future, he ever lives to intercede with the Father for you, pleading his blood. So what sin are you afraid of? What do you need to confess to God? And say, God, forgive me. And when you do, at that moment, Christ goes to the Father and says, my blood was shed for that sin. You know what that does? That'll kill your fear of condemnation. Of banishment from God. Do I deserve banishment? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But his blood hides all my transgression from view. Augustus Toplady, isn't that a cool name? A guy from the 1700s wrote a hymn called A Debtor to Mercy Alone. In it he reflects on this text. A debtor to mercy alone of covenant mercies I sing. I come with your righteousness on my humble offering to bring. The judgment of your holy law with me can have nothing to do. The Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from you. Folks, I want you to understand this. When you stand before God one day, if you have trusted Christ, you will not be an innocent person. No, no, you will be guilty, but forgiven. I won't be innocent. I won't be able to plead my innocence. I will plead the innocence of the blood of Christ who died for me and died for you. And that hope should prompt in us today in all of the condemning circumstances that we face, the hope that my sins, plural, can and are forgiven because Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of God? And this is the last word. What do we fear? 
We fear circumstances that we can't control or predict. We fear condemnation because of our sinfulness. And we fear separation from God. I take you back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve in the bliss of, of the paradise of God. And they rebel against God. And the moment they rebel against God, what do they feel in their heart? Separation. Father had said to them, in the day that you eat of that tree, dying you will surely die. You will experience a spiritual death and separation. God comes in the cool of the day to enjoy what you were created for. To walk with God. And to know Him. Sin takes it away. Christ's blood brings it back. Cleanses you from sin. And you know what God aims to do? God does not aim to give you a better life today. You know what God aims to do? God aims not to alleviate your pain. God aims to bring you into a relationship with him that will make you secure where there is no threat or fear of separation because your sins have been washed away. And his aim is to bring you back into that personal, vital, loving relationship with God. In no matter what circumstance you're in today, he wants you to know that. Talk with a friend last week on Sunday afternoon. A seeker. Someone who is clearly in a place where they want to know the truth. They know their life has broken pieces. They know there's an emptiness. There's an insecurity. There's a lack of satisfaction. A career person who has done, frankly, very, very well. Lives in New York City. Very successful. Expressing, you know what? I've been watching the Oprah Network on Sundays. You know what Oprah Network is full of? Spiritual teachers. Meditation, yoga, on and on and on. You know what people are looking for? You know why it's so popular to the crowd in New York City? Because there's emptiness in life. The sad thing is this. What's promised through those false prophets doesn't meet your real need. The aim is often to have an untethered soul, a, a soul that's free from the, the constraints and needs and burdens of life. So if it can meditate or do yoga or something like that where I can just hit nirvana or, or Buddhism, just escape. But where are you then? You're alone. What does Jesus say to the burdened person? To the person weighed down with the, the difficulties and struggles of life? What does Jesus say? Come unto me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will secure you in a relationship with me in a difficult world. That's the gospel. It's not relief from your pain. It's relief and a new relationship in which you can deal with the struggles and suffering and groaning of a hard world and remain secure because God is for you. All of this made possible to us through the cross work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Paul's conviction is this. I am convinced that in all things we are secure because he controls all things, all circumstances. He removes all condemnation and he eliminates all fear of separation by bringing us into a personal relationship with God, which is what you long for whether you know it or not. This individual said to me, hey, by the way, what do you think of all those people, all those teachers? I said, they're preachers of hope. That's what they are. 
but false hope. It's about self-help. It's about self-deliverance. It's about self-salvation. And there's someone who says, come to me, and I will give you rest. I will give you the relationship you need and don't know it. Folks, that's what's so sad to me. We live in a world of people that don't even know what they really need, but they know they need. And you know what they do? They go shop the networks. They go buy books. They follow teachings. We follow a Savior. And that is the fundamental difference between biblical Christianity and all world religions. God became a man. He came and sought a relationship with you. He, he sought the relationship you really need. And he died to make it possible. Eliminated fear of condemnation, brought you into a permanent relationship that is unseverable by his grace alone. And that's why as Christians we can say, I am secure in Christ who loves me and gave himself for me. Not secure for because of my performance, not secure because of my good life, not secure because of anything I have ever done. I'm secure because of what Christ has done. And as a Christian, I can live knowing that eventually all of these truths will come into being. In the glory of that day when God shows himself in fullness for who he is. Through the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. Let this hope assure you and let it give confidence to you in his love for you as his child. Only when we stand for the truth of Christ, will be know the blessing and comfort of this truth and of Christ himself. So I encourage you this week, go stand in all of your circumstances with no fear of condemnation because you can never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father.